we look to the day when when our voices will be joined with the voices of the multitude in heaven, when we sing praise and glory to your name. And Lord, we praise and glorify you from because from eternity past, you had a plan, a plan that involved us to give us life, to give us a place, to give us a relationship with you. We are so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, and we will give him praise all of our days. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. So in in 2010, uh, Barbara and I were driving in New Jersey. Now we haven't been to New Jersey very often, uh, but there was a chapel there we were going to go speak at, and I didn't have GPS at that point, so we're following a a map, and I realized we were going the wrong direction, so when you're going the wrong direction, what do you do? You repent, right? Repent means to turn around, go the other way, so I did a U-turn. Well, the next thing I know, the lights are flashing, the sirens going, the cop is saying, pull over, pull over. So we pulled over, and you sit there, and there's this requisite amount of time that you have to sit there while they do whatever it is that they do. I don't know. I think it's just so you can boil in your juices, you know. And anyway, he comes up, and he said, he said, I can't believe you did that right in front of me. And I said, did what? <laughs> you did a U-turn. And I said, yeah, (laughs) you know, there wasn't a no U-turn sign. And he said, U-turns are illegal in the entire state of New Jersey. Well, thank you very much. Information that would have been helpful five minutes ago. But I, so I said, listen, I, you know, I'm in the military. We travel a lot. This isn't my home. If you look at the plates, uh, you'll see they're from someplace else. And he said, oh, he says, yeah, I'm. I'm retired military, and uh, I said, oh, great. And he said, did you spend any time over in the sandbox? And I said, yeah, sure. And he said, okay, just a warning this time, you know, thanks for your service. Thanks for your service. So it was kind of a mutual thing going on there. But I tell you what, has a police car ever lit up behind you, right? That will get your attention. It got my attention anyway. Uh, get your blood pressure up, you know, first thing you do, unless you know what you did, is what did I do? What did I do? What, why is he stopping? What's going on? Uh, how long is this, this going to take and how much is this going to cost, right? And for most of us, unless we, you know, dabble in some strange tax situation, that's the most trouble we'll ever get in uh, with the state. We don't do that too much. But even the entry level of that kind of interaction with the state is uh, is anxiety producing. And so why is this significant to us? I believe that 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 12 has something to say to us in our day. Given the arc of history, we may be faced with more than simple traffic violations in relation to the state. Chapter 1, verse 8 through 12 reads this. 
So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his purpose, his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, some of your versions may say preacher, and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Something about this that we've mentioned several times is that the Apostle Paul was aware of his imminent death. And in that, he tells Timothy, join with me. You have to understand when you read the, the diaries of the, the, their diaries that people kept when they were awaiting at death. There are stories that people wrote when they were awaiting death. So this is not some metaphorical notion that Paul is talking about. Paul, he knew that Nero would kill every single Christian if he were able to do so. And Paul told Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, but rather share in the suffering. When they arrest you, which they will, tell them you know Christ. Tell them you know me. Align yourself with Christ and with me. I mean, the sermons I read are here on uh, Timothy always carry a very similar theme. We need to be bolder in our proclamation of the gospel. However, like Timothy, we are timid to tell others about Christ. And therefore, given verse 7, seeing that we have been given the spirit of power, love, and self-control, do not be embarrassed by the gospel or of others who have dedicated themselves to Christ. Now, all of that is true. All of that is true. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. And I will give you some ideas to why I don't think he was talking about that, because history has something to say to us in addition to Scripture. That's a fine application to boldly preach the gospel. That's a fine application. I don't think that's what he's talking about. A generation after Christ's death, Christianity had reached Rome, Rome itself, into some very high places in Rome. And believers were continually proclaiming a new king and that this new king was over a new kingdom. And uh, any history of Rome will tell you that the authorities, that the rulers were ever and always paranoid. And so they viewed all those sentiments as a threat to the state. That's what... You have to understand, oftentimes, 
the martyrs weren't martyrs because of their belief in Christ. It was for them, but as far as the state was concerned, it was because they were in opposition to the empire. So you end up in the summer of A.D. 64. We've mentioned this before. Rome suffered a terrible fire. When I say terrible, I mean it three quarters of the city with a million people, three quarters of the city burned to the ground. Twelve thousand plus people dead. Two hundred and fifty thousand people homeless. This 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 was a mess and the citizenry was ticked off and they blamed Nero. Why'd they blame Nero? Because Nero had already said he wanted to tear it all down and build it all back up in a Greco style. He was kind of like that Greek architecture, you know. So to get away from those accusations, Nero blamed the fire on the Christians. And what he did was this. Now, this is the historical background we have to understand in order to understand this text fully. He had a few believers arrested. When I say few, I mean few. You can count them. But under torture, they accused others until the entire Christian population in Rome was implicated. Now, this is something that we have to understand clearly and under, to understand what's happening here. Paul did not tell Timothy not to be embarrassed, but rather not to be ashamed. What's the difference? Embarrassment is your response to how others think about you. Being ashamed is your response to how you think about yourself. I mean, Paul goes straight to the heart of it. Paul is ordering... Timothy to tell the authorities, not only do I know the gospel, it is my life, not only do I know Paul, he is my father in the faith. I mean, so what was happening in real time here, real time, right? You flip on the news, you flip on the radio, we see what's happening in real time with us. What was happening then? Believers were betraying believers, You know what happened to the betrayer? Same thing that happened to the betrayed. The Apostle Paul was all over this. You know, this left a moral injury in the church that took centuries to heal. You may not even know anything about it. But if you read church history, you will find out that this injury that was suffered by these betrayals went for 400 years even after Constantine made Christianity the official state religion, it didn't matter. It was another hundred years before the church itself was able to bind those wounds. Paul was prescient. He was prophetic in understanding that for Timothy to do anything else then celebrate the gospel and celebrate Paul would lead to a moral injury from which he could not recover. Now, a moral injury is an injury that we suffer when stakes are high, when, when things are on the line and important, and things go wrong, 
and we say things or we do things or we do not say things or we do not do things that violate the core, our center of uh, our being, our deepest moral code, and it negatively impacts us for a very long time. Moral injury is one of the leading elements, in fact, in veterans' suicide. So again, what was happening in Paul's day? Listen, let's listen to, this will be not a radio or TV broadcast. They didn't have those back then. But we'll listen to Roman historian Tacitus, who was alive uh, during this time period. Uh, and then he became a historian and he actually wrote about it. He said this, Therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, Emperor Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians. Now, I think that's a fascinating statement for a Roman who was accustomed to the Colosseum, who was accustomed to gladiators, who was accustomed to those kinds of things, would say something like, punished with the most fearful tortures. How awful must they have been? Accordingly, he goes on, first, those were arrested who confessed they were Christians. Next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted. Not so much on the charge of burning the city, but on the charge of hating humanity. Isn't that a fascinating, fascinating thing? He goes on to say, in their very deaths, though, this is where even Tacitus said, this was not good. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day waned, they were burned to serve as evening lights. Consequently, a feeling of compassion arose toward the sufferers because they were perceived to be victims not of justice, but of the ferocity of one man. Okay, so what can we say about this as it relates to our text? Nero rabidly persecuted Christians from 64 to 68 A.D. The reason he stopped in 68 A.D. is because that's when he killed himself. Tradition places Paul's martyrdom somewhere between 64 and 67. So Nero had the Apostle Paul uh, executed. Now, as a Roman citizen, he was spared the Colosseum. Uh, He was also spared crucifixion because he was a Roman he was beheaded because the Romans felt that was the most noble, dignified of of all capital punishments. And he wrote 2 Timothy at some time between 64 and 67. Now, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, why are you going to Hebrews, John? Some of you may know, which conservative scholarship places before the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Remember, Jerusalem was wiped off the face of uh, the earth in 70 A.D. This was written before that because Hebrews very much indicates that the sacrifices were still going on. And so somewhere in there, and then there's this 
clue that we see to Paul's purpose here in Timothy. It's found in Hebrews 13, 23. It may come as a surprise to you if you haven't read this recently, that they were awaiting the imminent release from prison, Timothy. That would have then coincided, or certainly could have coincided, with Nero's death. In other words, the Christians, when, upon Nero's death, were being released. So then it, Hebrews, written after Paul's martyrdom and before Timothy's uh, release, and in 2 Timothy 4.21, which we'll get to later, he says, do your best to come before winter. Those are some of the most sad but hopeful words in all of Scripture. Do your best to come before winter. And the question we don't know the answer to, but did Timothy make it? We're not told. We don't know. We don't know if he made it before Paul was martyred. I like to think that he was. And it could have also been at that time that he was arrested, imprisoned, and then freed sometime prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. We don't know. But what we do know is that Timothy went to prison for the gospel. We know that for a fact. And remember, prison in Rome was not the punishment. (laughs) It was the holding, awaiting the punishment. And so they'd stick you down in a hole. And like in many places and countries in the world, some of which I have uh, ministered in, if your family and friends don't feed you, you don't eat. If they don't clothe you, you don't get any clothes. And that's just the way it is. It was that holding that was a punishment. In 1994, I was interrogated by, for the lack of a, a better word, the secret police in Jordan. And I was escorted to, it was a bare concrete room. It's hard to describe. Well, it's easy to describe. It's hard to describe the, the feeling, let's say. Sloping floors down with the drain. Uh, the only thing in there was a small desk, a chair, King Hussein's picture on the wall and a hose bib. And I'm like, this is not a good place for me to be. And uh, the locals called it the, the fingernail factory. No windows, uh, no nothing else. That was it. Right out of Hollywood, though. I'm, I'm standing, standing, standing. And he's, you know, pushing this and that, uh, this and that. And then he looks up at me. I mentioned this to you before. And he says... Uh, He says, we're not placing you under arrest. Pause. Yet. (laughs) Now, while I was not in any fear of uh, my life, because, you know, Americans, you know, enjoy privilege by the state in a case like that. But I was nevertheless surprisingly unnerved. I mean, simply being, being in a place where no matter how unlikely you could be disappeared, that's a strange feeling to have. So, you know, prayer, safety, courage. I'd seen what the likely outcome was going to be because I had seen 11 other uh, missionaries get kicked out of the country. But the thing is, is when you get kicked out of the country, it's like you just go. I mean, 
You don't, you know, you don't go home, you don't pass go, you don't collect $200, you just go to the airport and you're banned for life. So if you got stuff there, you better hope you got somebody to get it out for you because it's not going to be you. And so uh, was that to be my lot? That's a whole another story uh, there. But when Paul told Timothy not to be ashamed, he was specifically referring to suffering at the hands of the state. Do you think, think about this, think about this for a second. Do you think for one second that the Apostle Paul would grab somebody to join with him on his second missionary journey who was afraid to preach the gospel? Not on your life. Not a chance. Look at what happened during Paul's second missionary journey. Timothy was there the whole way. Paul never said, you dummy, go away. No, he brought him to him like he was his son. It, it, we get sometimes, I think, I, 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 okay, because it's, it's bubbling up anyway. I have never bought into the notion that Timothy was some weak, timid person, ever. I've, I've, never, I've never felt that because I don't believe that Paul would have aligned himself that closely with someone who we often challenge their very integrity. Now, so anyway, I, cause I'll tell you what the stakes were with Timothy, and I'll tell you why Paul was doing this, at least as I see it. They were stakes that Cassie Burnell understood. You may recall Cassie. That name may ring a bell in your mind. Craig Scott, the brother of Rachel Scott, who was the first victim killed at Columbine High School in 1999, was in the library during the massacre. He told investigators that he heard one of the the shooters, and by the way, we should never say their names. I just... Columbine cowards, maybe. One of the shooters asked someone whether or not they believed in God. And that a female answered and answered yes. And that the shooter killed her. Uh, Scott said he recognized the voice as Cassie's. Now, what would we say? What would we say? I know what we would like to say, but what would our testimony be? Jesus talked about this in John 15, 18 18 through 21. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. As its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will, uh, me, they will also persecute uh, you. I didn't put this on a, you won't be able to see this, but I did just want to show you that it was a thing. It was This was a thing all the way back then, Some in some ways like it is today. And, you know, maybe I could have got a slide of it. But if you didn't have one of these, 
If you didn't have one of these, uh, you would be uh, killed. Okay, so what is one of these? This is a statement saying that you have made sacrifices to the gods and that you have sworn your uh, allegiance to the emperor. That's what this is. If you didn't have your little card, you would be killed. That's what they made the Christians do. And if you didn't have that, you would be put to death. It was an awful, awful thing. And so there's evidence that some of these were forged. There's evidence that many Christians did the sacrifice. And it is not without reason that we're told that the church is based on the blood of the martyrs because many, like Paul, would not. Paul even guaranteed this just a little bit later, Second Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But enduring suffering for Christ is never a compliment. I can't do that, okay? Well, this is the great thing, uh, I believe, because that's never accomplished by the human will. We only gain that kind of strength to overcome persecution by the power of God, His Spirit operating within us. And in those moments, we're totally dependent on Him and we place our confidence in Him. Because in, in order to endure, the why has to be that the why is Jesus Christ. But there's also another why that's here. Because we're not called to be witnesses. We're not called to suffer just because God thinks it's a good idea. No. Many Christians, though, have little idea of, of the arc of Christian living. In other words, why? why? What's it for? Paul tells us in one nine. he says that God has called us to a holy life. This is our life purpose. And the call gives us structure. It gives us meaning. It gives us uh, substance to all the choices that we make, to the thoughts that we think, the things that we do And this purpose, we're told in the text, existed before the creation. And it was intended in Jesus Christ as an extension of God's grace given to us before the beginning of time. You know, we, we can't limit, nor should we limit what God has said simply because we don't understand it. Simply because we can't comprehend it or we can't condense it to a system. We can't quantify it uh, and classify it. We accept with gratitude and with love. God's grace, eternally purposed, has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. I mean, is this not John 1.14? The manifestation of God in the flesh to us? And now Paul's coming to it even deeper with Timothy and with us. And that is this. Do not fear death. Paul is not talking about being embarrassed to tell somebody you're a Christian. 
He's not talking about you being timid in the marketplace saying, will you take this tract or can I tell you about Jesus or something? That's not what he's talking about. Paul is talking, don't, don't let the text be reduced to that. Why? In, in understanding the scripture as written and understood in its historical context, we understand that it is the incarnation of Jesus Christ who has in his own body destroyed death, brought life and immortality to light. That's what the text says. Death has been made ineffective. It has been made powerless. Jane Fonda's in the news. Some of you may remember her or have, have heard of her. She's just revealed that she has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, so I thought, well, okay, mention on Golden Pond. Some of you may have even seen that. Uh, she, along with her father, Henry Fonda, and uh, Catherine Hepburn, they, they starred in a movie all the way back in 1981 on Golden Pond. What it, it's a story of an aging professor. And the, here's the thing about the story. And if you, you have to watch the story from this perspective, that you have this the beauty of nature surrounds you. At the same time, the relentless pursuit of death is upon you. And so you have these two things juxtaposed. They're, they're, they're sitting there together, filmed against this. And the thing is, is in, in many ways, the story is really poignant. The bottom line is, is how most people look at the hopeless and helpless face of, of death. And it's beautiful in many ways, but it leaves you silent in the face of death. My mind and my heart, though, goes someplace else. I go someplace else because I have sat with many who had hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore their resurrection so that when they faced death, they had something to say. Stuart Briscoe, one of my the preachers that I attached myself to, died one month ago today at 92 his obituary said that he faced his death the way he faced his life in the power of the resurrection. What a difference. The golden ponds on earth will dry up. They will blow away. But the golden streets in glory will run forever. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. It gives us life and it removes the fear of death. Death does not have to be a terror for those of us who are in Christ. Paul, in essence, is saying, Nero is not my captor. I am captured by Christ. Do not fear what may be done to the body, but for things eternal. Death, now instead of dread, can become a doorway to a, a new existence of, of beauty, of joy, a place where Jesus Christ himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. According to Scripture, this happens immediately upon uh, death. When we die physically, we're immediately present 
with the Lord. I mean, even spiritual death has been overcome by the power of God's life. In this gospel to which Paul was appointed a a herald and an apostle and a teacher, Paul drew attention to his calling by God. I mean, his work was not his idea. He was called to this. Other people wonder here, there's this statement in your text, it might say uh, preaching. In the ESV, it says herald, which is actually a better word. Uh, So often people wonder, what is preaching? I hear that from time to time about good preachers and bad preachers and better preachers and and the difference between teachers and preachers and all of that. Uh, what, what is it? Uh, too often it's confused with charisma or the lack thereof. But the word in verse 11 tells us what the Bible says that preaching is. Many words could have been chosen, but the Holy Spirit chose this word, and he chose the word herald. Now, I, you know, we think of men named Harold, and we sing about Hark the Herald Angel. Uh, but what does Harold mean? It, we don't have heralds much today. We don't need them. We've got TV and we've got radio. But the closest thing that this word comes to is the word ambassador. However, there's a main difference. There's a huge difference here between herald and ambassador, the significant difference is this. The herald has no ability, no right, no privilege to negotiate what is being said. In other words, a herald must speak simply, clearly, and understandably the word of the king. That's it. Simple. And in our context, that's the word of God. That's what preaching is, the faithful exegesis and exposition of Scripture. Exegesis, what does it say? What what is in there? What does it matter? Exposition is the showing forth of what it says. And in due time, we'll get to 2 Timothy 4.2, but let me preview it for just a moment. I charge you... In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Through solemn testimony. Okay, what is that word there? I charge you. Dia marturamai. Through martyr. Through, it came to mean through martyrdom. In other words, this is as solemn a testimony as you can get. Didn't mean martyrdom as in death at that moment, but a hundred years later it certainly would. Now this is as serious as it gets. So what is the charge? Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I mean, think of that. The Apostle Paul is charging Timothy, his son in the faith, in the presence of God with Jesus Christ at his side. And he's giving this charge to Timothy. This is the last thing, in essence, Paul is saying to Timothy, preach the word. 
That is what I'm dedicated to, proclaiming the word of God. That's what First Colony Bible Chapel is dedicated to, the faithful exposition of God's carefully examined word. You will note, if you attend here long, we do not dodge what Scripture says. We do not look at inconvenient passages directly in the face and said, brethren, let us pass on. We look at it. We, we talk about it. We don't pass over it. Why? Because it's not me or anyone else who stands here or teaches the children or in the Sunday school. It is the word of God that we proclaim. And I'm going to change what the Holy Spirit said. None of us will do that. Paul proclaimed the gospel. That is why he said, I am suffering. And it resulted in what? Beatings. Loneliness, imprisonment, hunger, shipwrecked, attacks, criticism, misunderstanding, rejection. Ultimately, it led to his death. But Paul was able to say this. I know in whom I have believed. I know he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Paul had an unshakable confidence in the comprehensive meaning for every Christian. And that's what he was, that's what this was about with Timothy. This is not preaching in the marketplace, folks. That's not what this is. This is preaching in what used to be a phrase and maybe still is, truth to power. That's what this is. This is looking in the face of the authorities of this world and saying someone is greater than you. Bow the knee. Mm, Trust me, they don't like that. If we don't like that, they most assuredly don't like that. The meaning for every Christian is this. We were called before creation. Before the creation of the world, we were called by God And our present life and work is safeguarded by Christ. And we are destined for an unshakable future with him in glory. Father, we we come to passages like this that are sometimes challenging. Challenging because of hundreds and hundreds of years of interpretation and our own understanding of what life is and what it should be. And uh, Lord, what we want to do is understand the call to commitment that is here. This is something that the Apostle Paul calls not only Timothy to, but us to as well. And that is in our, in our hearts to align with, even to, as it relates to the gospel, our own heart. We thank you for the power 
that you give to us to manage those kinds of things, even those kinds of thoughts. And Lord, the, the notion too of not having to fear death, we might. Many of us may, but there's a pathway. There's a pathway to where we can see it as the pathway to you in glory. We thank you, we praise you, through Christ our Lord. Amen.